0: And there's this giant circuit across Canada, very complex. You'll see my board behind me has like maybe 30 events going on this year. Events we are involved in and in every major Canadian city. And there's this whole undercurrent of the Canadian conference expo market, the circuit we like to refer to it as, that links together the consumers, the investors, the B2B,
1: thousands of entrepreneurs. Welcome to the Cannabis Business Podcast. As a cannabis entrepreneur, how do you become better at what you do? If you're like me, you read a lot of books, listen to podcasts, and attend conferences. One of the best ways that I know how is to talk to business leaders. I want to welcome Sy Williams to this podcast, founder of High Canada Magazine, a Canadian-owned national print magazine coast to coast in Canada. How did you get started in the cannabis space at all?
0: I have loved cannabis my entire life. My brother, he's about 10 years older than me. When I was 15 years old, he gave me a big bag of weed for my birthday. Like, wow, I love this stuff. Had I known about the potential for the uh, cannabis and the uh, undeveloped mind, I may have paused that start a couple of years. But looking back, it changed my life. was a cannabis enthusiast for a number of years. I ran the cast art collective in Kensington Market in Toronto for a number of years. I had worked as a visual artist touring around Italy and Amsterdam and Canada, showcasing my paintings and my large scale installation art, artworks. My very last city arts project before I started High Canada was for Nui Blanche. And I was one of the 10 artists selected to treat 10 buildings they had in Toronto, um, for Nuit Blanche. So I hung like 5,000 pairs of sneakers off the Bata Museum and got people to write their personal stories on the soles of the shoe. And then we donated the shoes to a, a bunch of groups that reuse use shoes, giving people shoes who have been through natural disasters. While I was running CAS, we kept running into funding issues. It's hard to run a collective, an arts collective, in, in, in any city, regardless if it's Canada or the U.S. We've been plugging along for a couple of years. We had about 18, 18 artists within our group. We kept finding uh, funding to be a major challenge. And this was about the same time the, the real big sensory push started in Toronto. I reached out, we were having a few art openings, and I started to reach out to uh, some of the, the groups that I saw emerging at the time. And wow, lo and behold, not only did they, were they interested in things like social change, social justice, uh, they were also uh, passionate about the arts. And how they applied to their uh, new industry. So we started picking up some sponsorship money from different cannabis groups to continue, you know, doing what we were doing. And as I got more interested in the cannabis, the new cannabis, emerging cannabis space, this was about six years ago. Um, I saw that there was a vacuum in the industry. The uh, Treating Yourself magazine had stopped publishing. Uh, they were the only ones really doing any sort of trade show or conference, and they had just gone under or disappeared. There, there's a whole bunch of backstory reasons why, but they'd stopped publishing the Treating Yourself magazine. Cannabis Culture, the, the, the Cannabis Culture magazine, it was impossible to find any copies out here in Ontario. High Times, same thing. It was expensive, and you could only find it in the odd 7-Eleven. There was a gap. There was a vacuum in the industry. I've always been a creative person. Uh, I went to the University of Toronto for both um, English Literature and Fine Arts Studio. So I've always been able to combine my particular skill set to apply to uh, whatever I'm doing. And I started a very in-your-face magazine called Rolling Stone. It was meant to be initially just kind of uh, replacing what I felt was needed in the industry. I had Willie Nelson on my cover, Lady Gaga, uh, Snoop Dogg, Seth Rogen. And we put out about dozen issues of that. And through that, I started to build great uh, distribution model here in Ontario through all the dispensaries that were popping up. This is pre-Project Claudia. started to visit Vancouver and Calgary and Halifax and saw that there was a real need for a national magazine. I had a big arts contract, like as I mentioned earlier, with the city of Toronto, and they had a morality clause in their contract. I would never, would not have received funding for my project if I broke this morality clause. And one of the parts of the morality clause was drug use and drug promotion. And I waited until my Nui Blanche project was complete. I shut down um, the Rolling Stone brand two months, in, uh, two months before the project. I worked on the City of Toronto project. I hung my 5,000 shoes. I did the follow up. And then three days after my contract ended with the city, I started High Candidate Magazine. Which I decided immediately would be a national magazine and it would be like its predecessor, like Rolling Stone. It would be a free magazine available um, for mail out and through the dispensary market. Issues actually go out to individual mail subscribers and now most of them do. We really had to change up our distribution model several times over the last couple of years after Project Claudia with the rise and fall and rise and fall again of the dispenser models throughout Canada. And now we're seeing it again since since October 17th, 2018. Uh, The whole distribution model has again shifted on its head where we send most of our issues out individually to mail subscribers, and then the rest go out through, uh, we do a, a number of these con- cannabis expos, conferences and events, and we distribute the rest to that distribution model. We're currently revising our distribution model yet again to include more grow shops, uh, GYO shops, more hydroponic shops. And um more of the lounges that we're seeing open up are uh, across the country. Because we do I love our free distribution. We love being able to inform and educate Canadians about cannabis. And it's many, many multi many, many types of uh forms it takes. It's very multifaceted. We've got glass blowers, so we've got manufacturers, we've got gray market transitioning to white market, we've got white market that's never even looked at gray market before trying to figure cannabis out. We've got 20 different types of technology involved in growing. We've got 30 different types of technologies involved in tracking data and new technologies revolving around cannabis. We have applications like strain print coming out of the woodwork right now uh, that are kind of bridging the gap between the patients and the strains, the medical strains. And then we have REC, which is a whole uh, beast unto itself. The British Columbia market is very different than the Ontario market, which is very different than the Alberta market, which is very different than the maritime models uh, we see, which is night and day from the Quebec models. And then we have the very conservative prairies that have their own kind of take and look. That's the slowest place where uh, Canada is battling stigma and really pushing education and information, Uh, Manitoba, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Alberta is way open-minded, so is British Columbia, and even Ontario, and the Maritimes, but we still have a lot of work to do in the prairies.
1: You mentioned the Claudia Project. I wasn't sure what that was. Was that a Toronto experience? Project
0: Claudia was it was one of the first big raids where they came in like a Stoppo and they raided maybe 30 or 40 dispensaries for a couple day period. A lot of people went to jail. A lot of people were charged. A lot of but tenders who shouldn't have been charged were charged. Uh, a lot of those charges have been dropped. It was very a uh, pivotal moment in Canada and in Ontario when it came to the dispensary market. A lot of people left that particular industry. A lot of people dug their feet in and said, fuck no, you're not going to make me stop doing what I'm doing. There weren't a lot of online dispensaries at that point, and then we saw the rise of the online dispensaries that kind of decided they still wanted to be a part of the cannabis space, but weren't willing to risk the visibility and the vulnerability of being a storefront. Then, even recently, since the uh, legalization, and even a couple months before, I've seen some of these these online companies transition over to the white market and sell their uh, previous their, their once illegal brands to uh, large Purchasers for like 150 to 3 million dollars. So lists of thousands and thousands of people, patients who depend on their medication and have been getting their medication through online dispensaries. This kind of information is invaluable to the uh, licensed producers because the ones who are producing medically, they need more patients, and this is where they're going to get these patients from an already established lists of clients that companies have been working for three, four, five years building.
1: I know you're not a medical cannabis user. I don't believe you are.
0: I have used cannabis medicinally. I, I have my license. I don't order off the uh, licensed producers. I Personally, I'm a little offended with the cost. I hear quite frequently at a lot of these events, Canada's not even getting the very best the licensed producers have to offer. I understand that most of the trips and quads, the really goods that they're producing is actually being sent out to Germany, leaving Canadians with the remainder. I, I heard something very interesting at the Lyft Expo recently. They are explaining the um, pricing. Germany will pay like 12.50 euro a gram. That's very lucrative. But they're only making if they sell it back to the Canadians. They're only making like five or six dollars a gram. I think it was five forty-five a gram. Thai Canada Magazine. We've been watching this whole trend into exporting our cannabis to the rest of the world for a while now. We're starting to see Jamaican and Colombian and Mexican cannabis making its way into Canada, but we're not there yet. It'll be a while. I would personally like to see a lot more of our um, Canadian cannabis come back to Canadian consumers and not just take the money and run uh, and supply an entirely different country just because they don't have cultivation licenses, but distribution licenses. You know what's funny? I was at the Lyft conference in Vancouver, at the beginning of January, and they had four separate components uh, that made up the Lyft conference this year. And I really loved it. It was the first day was Totally corporate business. It was the, the LPs and the big corporate decision makers all got together one day to talk policy and do a little do planning. The second day was the industry day. And we watched almost eight thousand people pour into the Vancouver event. All entrepreneurs people who wanted to, wanted to or were working within the cannabis space the weekend was the consumer driven day which was actually the weakest traffic of all so it really blew my mind to see how many people were getting into cannabis through from an entrepreneurial standpoint or like or were were working within the cannabis space already it, it was it was astonishing and if uh, the Vancouver show is any example Lyft Toronto show at the end of May is going to be phenomenal knock your socks off, cannot be missed. And I'm like, I'm hoping that it's the other events like this continue to recreate themselves and address what's really needed in Canadian society. A big part of what I do every day is disseminate and gather information, culminating every month in a deadline, every month for the last 39 months, if you don't count High Canada, every month for the last 50 months, if you include Rolling Stone, making sure I get a magazine out there every month, post online, printed, it's a labor of love, we have a huge team across Canada. We like to call them High Canada magazine reps that help us do what we need to do. Sometimes I wish I could go back in time and have a conversation with myself at that moment where I decided that I wanted to have a national magazine and not a regional magazine. The plus sizes are uh, include I um, I get to travel to so many beautiful places across Canada, coast to coast. And I've been really able to have a unique seat at the table and watching a new industry form and evolve. I've met so many wonderful people across Canada. I've had so many opportunities to interview interesting and wonderful people. Every month culminate in an issue, and this issue tries to cover as many aspects of the Canadian cannabis space as we can. We quite often, and every month since our inception, we've focused on at least one or two, sometimes three, women in lead, women who work within the cannabis space. We ask the same five questions to everyone who we've ever interviewed. And the um, responses are, they're like poetry. They're very different. Everybody's got a very distinct story and great advice to other women entering the cannabis space, and it is without doubt one of our most popular features. I reference this because I'm looking at the the new January issue number 39, where we talked to um, Val McCullough, who is uh, one of the people behind the Shatterizer brand, and Carly Thiessen, the longtime DC activist. She works with a couple of centers out there, but she has the most effective topical pain cream that I've ever, ever, ever used in my entire life. So every month, we put out these wonderful women and weed features. We do several reviews, products within the Canadian cannabis space. We talk to companies about what they're doing in the Canadian cannabis space. This month, we got an interesting perspective from our cover feature, uh, Classified, the hip-hop artist. He recently put out a new album, and the album's called Tomorrow is the Day Things Change. There was one particular song on the album called Legal Marijuana, and he uh, filmed this music video in the summer in Toronto. And if you check out the music video, you'll actually probably recognize like 30 people from the Canadian cannabis space. We had a very interesting interview with him He's from Nova Scotia and his take on how um, cannabis is becoming destigmatized and normalized. We had a very interesting challenge as of the um, as of legalization. We traditionally always uh, included the unregulated market within our advertising base. And they have been represented at least 60 percent of our advertising base. And we've tried to work with companies that we felt were on the right track, that were moving towards compliance, that were, you know, serving people, patients. We step away from people our group consider more money grubbing or profits over patients. We try to really be real with our coverage of the people. But, um, due to the new advertising restrictions and the hesitancy within the Canadian market, we've, we, we lost 60, 70% of our advertising base after that. The big difference, I think, between us and a lot of the online magazines is we still put out a printed magazine every single month and have since our inception. Uh, We're one of the very few printed magazines and one of the only Canadian printed magazines. Skunk has been bought up. Dope is a U.S.-based company. There's a few quarterlies out there that are event-based that just tried and haven't really made it. We have some contemporaries out there, but we don't have a lot of people who do what we do. I'd like to think anyways. Our digital portion only represents half of what we do. We do between 5,000 and 7,000 combined digital downloads every month. But that's not even the bulk of the people reading the magazine. It's the people who get this issue mailed out to them every month uh, across Canada. I know then they pass it over to their friends. And the printed magazine is is a valuable tool. Uh, It might be a niche market and it might be outdated but it's a valuable tool to getting information to rural areas across Canada. I do see a lot of these online magazines that are only reprinting what the LPs are giving them. That bothers me a little bit. I'd like to see more original content, more stories about people, not the corporation and how much money they're making. We really love to tell the stories about the people behind the scenes, the people who are passionate, that believe cannabis has changed their lives for the better and who are giving back and in service to their community. Um, Those are the stories I like to see told. Rather than uh, regurgitating the latest press release, there's nothing interesting or original about that, and that is not going to inform, or engage, or educate their audience. Anything. It's going to just bamboozle them further. That's not the kind of cannabis
1: coverage I want to see. Do you have a clear picture of the kinds of people who read your magazine?
0: I do. Uh, Over 25. we do, I think, a 52% women and then 48% men read our magazine. Uh, between 25 and 45 represent probably 50% of our readers. 45 up represent the other half. Our readers are distributed pretty evenly across Canada. Urban areas download more, rural areas request mail outs more. We get a lot of professionals. Because of our involvement in the Canadian trade show circuit over the last five years, we have a heavy following within the B2B community. We're constantly mining that community for stories and content and new advertisers. So uh, it makes sense that the network we built over the last five years has really evolved and grown because of that constant mining for new material for High Canada magazine, both online and offline. So I'd say uh, a, a good number of those people represent men and women who work within the cannabis space, who are interested in working within the cannabis space, or just plain interested about cannabis in Canada. We offer a lot of insider information about what's going on behind the scenes with a lot of bigger players as well. You know, we talked to Chuck Rafiki, Hugo Alvarez, Jody Emery, Jamie Shaw, so many big advocates and activists out there. And, you know, a lot of people who aren't involved in the Canadian cannabis space like we are. Or all they're hearing right now is, oh, cannabis is legal. Oh, there's uh, Mark Emery is in the news for mis- misappropriate behavior. And that's the bulk of what they're taking away from it right now. now last year, I had the opportunity to do a couple trade shows that weren't cannabis centric. And I really enjoyed them. I really enjoyed having H- H- Canada go out there and really inform and educate consumers about what cannabis is all about. And let me tell you, they don't know anything. We get so used to working within the Canadian cannabis space where everybody knows what cannabinoids are, what CBD can do, what THC is, what a sativa, how how different a sativa is from an indica, from a hybrid. So 90% of consumers have no idea. The most frequent question I get at these um, non-cannabis specific trade shows is, can CBD get me high? Indica, sativa, oh my God, there's more than one. There is so much Education that we still need to do as
1: Canadians. You're obviously very passionate about the medical side. I just wonder if you have any ideas for how the industry could be doing better.
0: Our team has been quite critical of the federal government uh, this year in particular about some of the ways they're addressing medical patients' concerns. It bothers me a lot to see the Ontario government subsidizing REC and turning its back on med patients. It disheartens me to see that they've uh, thrown the idea of compassion and pricing away. It saddens our entire team to see that, that most of these LPs would like to make their money off rec when a lot of them started serving small med patient bases. I hate to see high cost making it cost prohibitive for people who have been using cannabis, whatever way they want to use it. It's not cost effective. So if I'm on a disability and I'm using, CBD for my arthritis or my sleeplessness or my anxiety or whatever, and now it's twice as much online to buy it legally, that makes it cost prohibitive for me. If I'm on social assistance and I can barely make ends meet, uh, I'm going to buy my $7 a gram dispensary weed or street level weed because I can't afford the 14 or $15 you're charging me just to get my medication. They're misinformed for the most part about the true nature of medicinal. And it's been a long fight. And there are really good groups out there fighting the good fight, informing and educating on the governmental level. MCRCI is a good one out of British Columbia. scribe here in Ontario does uh, a lot of advocacy as well. When Bill Blair did his big tour around Canada to find out more about cannabis from people who used it, they didn't stop and talk to any of the people we knew. I don't know where they stopped, but uh, wherever they got their educa- education information about how uh, medicinal cannabis is being used, they were misinformed, or they were just, they only saw a small fraction. And as a result, we are seeing the, med- patient, the medical patients suffer. You know, soon we're going to start seeing um, insurance companies jump on board on uh, a bigger level, trying to reimburse uh, medical patients for the high cost of cannabis. It's unfortunate that we had that big scandal last year with the Veterans Association. There was some sort of scandal involved with how much they were being reimbursing and they had to cut back and limit how much they were being reimbursed. And to us, that just showed us that there was a real need within the veterans uh, community of, I think, Canada to treat things like post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh, injuries sustained during their time in uh, serving their country. We're going to to spend the next 10 years tweaking it and making it work. And not everybody is going to be happy, but we're going to, I I think as a country and as a group, there are enough voices out there uh, advocating for all the right things that it's it's hard to ignore. Our medical patients are the harshest critics when it comes to the licensed producers. If you look online it's the med patients who are holding the LPs accountable for moldy weed, high pricing, overpackaging. Uh, not doing what they originally said they were going to do. Never before there's been such a high level of accountability. And I think we're going to see that translate into uh, fairer access.
1: I used to work in the federal government. They are very dedicated to the work at hand and making sure that they maintain the commitments that we gave, you know, quote unquote, protect the children or reduce... I'm all about diversion. I am. Um, You have to be 21 to get on our website or we recommend you're
0: 21. I, um, I've read a number of studies on um, the effects of cannabis on an underdeveloped brain, and I agree, like alcohol, keep this stuff out of the hands of our children. We can't be glamorizing it, and we can't be promoting the children. That said, um, just like alcohol, there is a way to, to do that. And we are trying to, we are trying, we are not even trying, we are complying in every way we can to make sure that we do not market towards children. And that people are aware about effects of cannabis on an undeveloped brain. I have two sons. They're 20 and 26. I was adamant—not that, that they did not try cannabis, that they try cannabis in moderation until they were in 1920, just like alcohol. I didn't want to see them getting shit-faced drunk every night either. Uh, and then when they were 18, 19, we had the big discussions, and I spoke with both my sons. Now, funny that as publisher of High Canada magazine and such a huge advocate of cannabis
1: as a whole that I would have these concerns, but they're legitimate concerns. I'm particularly focused on California, uh, and I'm, what I'm doing is I'm comparing how our branding laws and our advertising laws and uh, maybe even our production grow laws, and I'm thinking that we're not in the best place when it comes to business, but we're in a great place when it comes to consumers.
0: People are seeing the, um, the American invasion of Canada right now through cannabis, and I'm not enjoying that. seeing a lot of large companies that have already made their bank in California with their five thousand medical dispensaries or it's a billion dollar market in some states. And they're taking that money and they're looking at Canada at this beautiful new market and they're seeing the opportunities. And they're taking advantage of this offer these opportunities. My worry we're gonna see large grow shops, Scots for, for instance, gonna come into Canada and wipe out all the mom and pop home home homegrown hydroponic shops, like chapters did with the small bookstore. We're gonna see start taking and seeing the um the kind of the more rural approach to growing taken away and it's going to become very Walmarty. And we're going to see this. And that's going to be the United States invasion of Canada. They're throwing a lot of money at the Canadian market right now.
1: Do you have to give out a message to uh, policymakers to think about how to set up the system?
0: I could launch into a bunch of things I think they should do, that my people think they should do, that I've read online that people think they should do. But ultimately, I'm going to cut them a little bit of slack. I'm happy that we even got this far, that we're even at the point that it's legal and we can now go back to the core systems and change parts of it and tweak it and make it better and make it so that it works for everybody. So instead of being really hypercritical, I'm going to applaud them on how much work they've done so far. And yes, it's a terribly imperfect system. They haven't taken so many things into account, but we still have time. And as a Canadian in my particular position, I'm optimistic that these changes will happen and that, that we will work out the kinks. It could be a hell of a lot worse. Uh, and we couldn't, we might, there's a chance we, we might not have even got to this point. We could have had the monopoly in Ontario. We got the lottery system. It was also an imperfect system. But as imperfect as things are, they are improving monthly. This year, we're going to see a tremendous improvement on the, on the way things are going. You know They've had to realize that they've done things wrong, and they're really re-examining a lot of the things they've already put into place. And I think we're going to see a lot of things addressed when they uh, make these announcements about edibles and all the new laws coming out in spring. Slow changes, small steps, can't please everybody right out of the gate all the time. I live in Brampton, and this fall, I watched one particular uh, candidate campaigning solely on an anti-cannabis platform. So Brampton was covered in like, no weed here. And then I see online forums and discussions talking about why certain cities opted out and then decided to opt back in. It's a lack of education information. Also wanting a bigger chunk of the pie is a big part of why the cities are opting in and out. But um, instead of focusing on just the negatives, just what it can do to our youth, how it can affect your driving and the information we're getting on how uh, different provinces are getting ready to sell it, the Canadian government's doing very little to educate its populace about what cannabis can actually do. So consumers are turning to the only source they have for information and education, the internet. And they're learning primarily everything they need to know themselves. And it's sometimes it's right. It's not always right. If Health Canada decided that they wanted to add a component to their marketing, current marketing campaigns that are primarily solely directed at driving and diversion. And use some of that, uh, some of their voice and some of their platform to provide clear and accurate information on what cannabis is, what THC is as opposed to CBD, what um, the, the different types of strains are, or what's the difference between sativa and indica, what a method of consumption may or may not be right for you. We're getting information and in education, just not about the things that Canadians are really interested in. We know we shouldn't be driving and smoking can also not be behind the wheel a car when we're on heavy medications or um or drinking. Canadians know this. We're not we're not that stupid. But they're 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 driving it home right now. They're also driving home the the diversion aspect where, you know, we'll keep cannabis away from our youth. Absolutely. But Canadians need to know what the hell cannabis is all about. Don't tell me this is a a widget and this widget is going to be bad for you when you drive and bad for kids. But don't tell me you're not telling me what the widget is. I am just have a general idea of what this widget is. They need to be clearer. They need to add a component. They have the capability. They have the voice and the platform. So why not include in more information education?
1: That is very specifically
0: what I think they could do.
1: You focus on women in your articles, and you talk about the community that we're building here.
0: Well, we talk about every man and women. It just so happens that we have this one particular feature that solely focuses on women because when we started when I started this industry, I felt I have six sisters. So I grew up in a, in a household that was um, dripping with estrogen. I am a firm believer in equality across the board. And when I got into the cannabis industry, I saw it was uh, it was run by men, all men. Every dispensary was owned by a guy. Women were poorly represented in this burgeoning community, but they represented most of the manufacturers. Most of the people creating these products were were women. Most of the backbones of these companies were women. And I thought it was important to focus on that. It made me really proud over the years to see the entire switch and that uh, women have become such a major part. I know out of our team, eight out of 10 of us are women on our High Canada Magazine uh, core team. And I know countless companies owned and operated by women. And I'm seeing more and more women being appointed to uh, positions of power uh, within the LP and the corporate structure, which is also heartening that they're taking and that they're learning as well. And it's not quite even yet. But every month we highlight not only the the triumphs of these women, but some of the adversity and challenges they've had to go through to get to where they are. And these are the questions that really inspire and empower other women to move past these challenges and get involved in the cannabis space, not only for themselves, but for you know uh, second income, second career. People are very passionate about the cannabis space when they get involved, and uh, they want to work in it. I would love to see just as many men and just as many women involved in the industry. Uh, it shouldn't be like an old voice club. You know, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white man. I understand that traditionally this type of media has been run by middle-aged white men. And it's important for me to give a voice to everybody else. It's not just my voice. My Canada is not just Cy Williams, and it's not just here to feed my ego. It's, it's a group of people who are dedicated and passionate to providing information and education
1: about cannabis.
0: And like I said, 80% of our team are, are women within the Canadian Canada
1: space. And that wasn't done on purpose, that's just the way it unfolded. I was wondering if you can give me a picture of what you could say is different around Canada, maybe even how you're part of that community.
0: We try our hardest to be a part of all of these different communities through our um, through our web of Canada reps. So for instance, Mellow Moments out of Kingston, she covers uh, eastern Ontario, southeastern Ontario. Incorporates like Ottawa, Kingston, the Tiangong Nega Mohawk territories, Alliston, you know, that particular area. She works in various roles within that community, enabling her kind of a very unique seat at the table, watching that particular part of the cannabis space evolve. Now, on the other side of that coin, we have our Toronto reps, um, Michaela Friedman and uh, Ginny Mora. Who they deal with a much more urban beat, and we see more activists and more dispensary culture up until recently. And it's more of a highbrow course, but it's evolved into more of a highbrow corporate business cannabis space here in Toronto. Whereas the dispensary market and the unregulated, uh, the more unregulated brands have all shifted over now to Hamilton, which is the new, um, has been for at least a year now, the uh, the real cannabis capital of Ontario with there they had uh, almost 100 dispensaries open there i think it's probably down to 50 they finally opted in and have started enforcing but there are like literally hundreds of manufacturers hundreds of brands that i know of out there are uh, both um regulated and unregulated now take that area those two regions three regions and then compare them to say montreal miss lynette our montreal uh, our quebec high canada rep uh jen larry from cbd strategies group mm-hmm. who's um uh, also works with us there, and it's a totally different market. That's really struggling to climb out of the black market it's been working with for the last 50 years. There we see a lot more biker involvement, a lot more organized crime. We see tighter restrictions on advertising. It's a totally night and day. Go to Victoria, where it would have been a mecca for edibles and cannabis users. They'll ticket you now for smoking weed in public, and they're very stringent about this. The British Columbia market is divided into all these different areas too. Victoria. The Golden Coast, the Vancouver Dispensary Market, and then thousands of microprocessors dotted throughout the southern British Columbia mountains, like literally thousands. And British Columbia, they also have to deal with organized crime coming in from the ports. Um, There's also the Russian mob, the Yakuza, the Vietnamese. There's all sorts of other types of organized crime that we don't see here in Ontario. Our growers aren't getting tariff or um, having to pay protection money to anybody either to make sure that their their crops aren't destroyed or they're not uh, beat up or robbed. And then there's uh, ripper culture where people are just waiting for growers to finish their crop and then going in and stealing everything. So we're seeing like more compound effect where growers are really like they've got the giant fences and the dogs and the guards and the. You know I've been blindfolded and helicoptered into a grow. Um, in British Columbia. And that was a very unique experience. But the places that I've had the opportunity to visit in British Columbia have really shown me how different that particular culture is from what we have over here in Ontario. There are so many differences. If you look at Alberta, they don't have a dispensary market at all. They have a tightly woven web of delivery systems and services. They also get winter nine months of the year. So um, it's a very conservative atmosphere. Move further the West from uh, Alberta, and you've got the Bible Belt and a very, very conservative approach to cannabis in Manitoba and and Saskatchewan. You know, even in Northern Ontario, we think is barely touched by cannabis culture. There are thriving little groups, Thunder Bay, uh, Wawa, North Bay, Sudbury. Our Sudbury Facebook group uh, that we're a part of has more, twice as many followers as our High Canada Facebook group. Every single area is different either because of geography or
1: politics or organized crime connection.
0: You know, it's a big deal to pull an entire market out of the black market.
1: One of the questions I'd definitely like to ask a guest is about their strains they like using.
0: There's a couple different markets within the Canadian cannabis space. There's the legal cannabis market where you can go online or go to one of these wonderful little stores and buy your cannabis directly. There's the high end quad market, quads, diamonds, all the high end specialty bits and bobs that we see, um, crystals and dab sauce. Uh, like this is, we're talking high, high end, $600 an ounce cannabis. We've got cheap and cheerful market. That is a result out of the dispensary market and street dealers, the low-end dubs, high trips, maybe if you're lucky. Uh, Then there's the concentrate market. Shatter's huge. Shatter has been huge for a long time. Rosin is taking its place because it's uh, easier to produce. It's uh, safer to produce. Not as many people are blowing their hands off. And the Canadian government, they come out down pretty hard on shatter manufacturers for C45. Rosin, however, is something people can do at home and press themselves. Uh, and then there's the edible market, the topical market, and we're not even going to go near
1: the CBD. For the record, uh, what's the difference between CBD hemp and cannabis?
0: Okay, so hemp-based CBD has 0% THC. It is purely hemp-based CBD. Uh, research has shown us, and there are so many people out there um, that have been able to educate us on this, that you need the smallest, smallest amount of THC to activate your CBD. Full-spectrum is much more popular amongst aficionados and connoisseurs because they know it works. Now, for instance, I have an opportunity to test many different types of CBD tincture. When I have a hemp-based CBD tincture, I need three times as much to achieve the desired effect that I would if I were taking a full-spectrum CBD with a little THC. People are all freaked out. Oh, THC, you're going to get me high. No, it's not going to get you high. Most of these uh, full-spectrum are coming with a very, like, for instance, Sparkle life It's a full-spectrum. It's a CBD, CBDV, CBG, and THC. Uh, Its percentages are very impressive. It's it's got like 1.67 milligrams of THCV, which activates all the other wonderful parts of this. Here's one that's a hemp-based CBD, and it's uh, also a 500 milligram. uh, It's a CBD formula. But on testing, you know, it took me three times more of this to get the tingly feeling of a pure CBD, cannabis-based CBD. So there's misinformation on the market. And then there are countless companies out there. They're already producing hemp-based CBD and distributing it through, like, jobber networks that supply variety stores across the country. And people are cashing in on the CBD phase. People are buying CBD from a number of sources. And it's really just hemp-based CBD. And the amount they're taking isn't going to be effective. There's nothing wrong with hemp-based CBD. It's good for you, and there are many, many benefits. Just if you're looking for the, um, the solid treatment option of a, a full-spectrum CBD,
1: you, you go right to a full-spectrum CBD. You don't muck around with like a diluted version. Part of the reason for asking about your favorite strain has to do with educating the audience out there to understanding little pieces of it.
0: Well, I've got a few different ones I'm particularly fond of.
1: When I'm working, I like a strong
0: a strong sativa. I really like Girl Scout cookies because it enhances my memory and it influences my like long-term recall. So I have these great memories of like 30 or 40 years ago. The diesels are great for sex. The sour diesels, I'm trying to relax. You know, a good indica. I really love uh, Remo's Zombie Kush. Uh, I always find that to be an uplifting and relaxing strain. It's one of his proprietary strains that I, I'm very, very fond of. I like wedding cake as well. It uh, usually gives me a little bit of a boost. It helps me with long-term planning and that kind of like intricate planning type of thought that I, I find myself involved in quite often. I love hash. always helps me shut down at the end of the day. I like dabs. I, I really enjoy the terpy tastes. Um, I like the heady effects. I love my shatterizer. I have a whole bunch of different cartridges that I use to try out different things. We try a lot of edibles here. I like edibles. It's easy to green out with edibles. People who are in chronic pain really seem to like the the concentrates and the um, the edibles because it allows them to get the maximum dose to address their pain levels. To be honest, I could see them really over the next 10 years really coming down hard on people who still consume cannabis through combustion. There are some inherent dangers behind the edibles. For instance, if you walk into my house, I have two adult children. One of them lives with me, he's 20. You look at my fridge, you'll see cherry cheesecake in a jar. You'll see gummies galore. You'll see Rice crispy squares, and you'll see pieces of cake and brownie and cookies. And like everything that's good in my fridge that looks tasty will get you high. Here's my point, though. Without a lockbox in my fridge, how am I supposed to keep that out of the hands of children? If I had grandchildren, or if I had little kids, um, there's nothing in my fridge that could not be consumed that would not uh, wind up putting that kid in the hospital. And we're going to see a lot more. Um, and I hate to use the word cannabis overdose because you can't really overdose; you can green out. But kids getting their hands on things that they shouldn't get their hands on because their parents aren't taking accountability for the the levels of danger involved as well. So as much as I want to see edibles out there on the, the market, I also want to see them kept within a safe Locked container within their fridge. So that we keep it out of the hands of kids, and not cast all this shade on uh, the the edibles market. Much like we keep our booze up and our um, cleaning supplies locked up under the sink, and our guns in a in a lockbox to make sure that we accept responsibility of these properly
1: and responsibly. If you had to give advice to people who are starting in the cannabis space, and I know there are different types of businesses, do you have any advice for people uh, about what to think about?
0: Be patient when it comes to building your team. Sometimes it takes time for the right people to uh, find you, for you to find them. Things will fall into place. There's a business analogy that I love about group dynamics. And it goes like this. Norming, storming, growing. Every group goes through. it. Initially, when you get a group together, a positive idea, passionate about this idea, pushing this idea forward. You're not pushing any boundaries. You're, not, you're, you're in the norming phase. And inevitably, the norming phase always leads to storming, where you re- meet challenges and hit adversity within your, on your path with your team. If you can make it through that that storming period, you get to a place called working, where you're actually moving your brand, your idea, your team forward in a positive direction. And every time you add a new component, you reset this. You go back to the beginning. It's important to remember to take that into account when you're building your team, you're building your brand, you're finding your place within the industry. That um, it takes time and requires patience. You're not going to hit it right the first time or even the third time. You're going to keep trying to, to to tweak it and make it work. Thai Canada and myself are huge fans of uh, mentoring, mentor of mentee relationships. Uh, We've uh, mentored a number of smaller companies over the years. Uh, we've had a lot of our Kite Canada reps transition using High Canada magazine as a platform to allow them to grow their experience, reputation, whatever, within the industry, and then carry those skills forth into a, a new career within the cannabis space. And a lot of that has to do with mentor-mentee relationships. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask people who are out there for their opinion, for for guidance, because they will offer it. And there are a lot of great companies out there that that offers mentor-mentee relationships. You just have to be, you you have to look for them. But they're worth their weight in gold to any entrepreneur, any person trying to get into the cannabis industry. Cannot say enough great things about um, how much that benefits both the mentors and the mentees. I have a dream. Uh, to turn High Canada magazine into a, a, a media group, into a network. And we've been uh, actively expanding our digital assets over the last couple of months in 2018 and also 2019, expanding our digital assets to uh, incorporate more video, um, more authentic coverage, more podcasts. I would like to see High Canada emerge as a leading cannabis media group in Canada over the next little while. Originally, I was going go to—it was supposed to be a five-year plan—and it was based around the magazine. But as we've grown into digital and expanded our video content through YouTube and other on other platforms, we've really seen a vacuum where we can fill and grow and turn into a Canadian version of *High Times*, a true Canadian version of *High Times*. Whether or not I'll always be at the helm is a different story, uh, but I'm certainly going to keep building it until we hit to that, get to that point. We've teamed up with Terry Roycroft, who is uh, head of MCRCI in British Columbia and also runs the 210 Canada movement, uh, 210canada.com, if you're interested. And what Terry's done is he's, uh, like all Canadians, he's decided last sometime last year that he didn't want to wait for 420. He wanted to blaze in February, halfway. So we started um, a new Canadian celebration uh, of all things cannabis, which he called the 210. And we were such a fan of what he had started last year, and that was such an amazing turnout, that we teamed up with them this year to further promote Duten as a Canadian cannabis uh, celebration. Uh, we're hosting both uh, a large industry mixer in Vancouver on February 10th at the Venue Nightclub. And we're also hosting the same party here in Hamilton, Ontario on February 10th at a yet-to-be disclosed location. Tickets are available for free on a we're using it as a platform to raise money um, in both British Columbia and Ontario for cannabis substitution programs. Now, if you don't know what cannabis substitution programs are, they are programs used, uh, that are being set up across the country for uh, people who are dealing with opiate addictions and heroin addictions and other hardcore drug addictions, and they're, they're utilizing cannabis as an exit strategy our substitution strategy to help people uh, wean off some of these uh, more harmful, harmful drugs. And their programs are meeting with critical success across the country. There's some really good ones out there, and there's a whole bunch of new ones that are forming. I I believe so strongly in these programs. Uh, I was in Vancouver last year and toured the High Hopes Project with their cannabis substitution program, making impactful changes on its uh, East Hastings, West Hastings community. And even recently, there was um, a cannabis substitution program set up in the uh, east side that has almost 300 people line up every weekend to participate. And talking to some of those people, you see that they're not just grabbing the, the cannabis or the cannabis oils to concentrate, the edibles to resale, to fuel their own addiction. They're actively making changes in their lives using cannabis as an exit strategy, other than harm reduction programs scattered across the country and methadone programs. I have yet to see anything as successful as the cannabis substitution programs I'm seeing set up across Canada. I'm seeing people being given their lives back, people who uh, the methadone program has failed, people who have slipped through the cracks, who are being offered a chance to get their life back. So we, uh, we support that movement 100 percent, more than we can possibly uh, ever support it. I wish that we could do more for them, and I would love to see programs like this set up all over Canada. It's, uh, it's certainly a cause that's near and dear to my heart. So that's February 10th in both Hamilton and Vancouver. After that, we have about uh, 30 giant events happening over the course of 2019, and I'm excited to have uh, as many of them as quite as, as physically possible. They want
1: to reach out to you, or if they want to find out more about uh, High Canada, uh, on our website,
0: High mag- sorry, highcanadamagazine.com, or on our digital download site, highcanada.net, They can always uh, there's a place on the website where they can drop me a note. We get many notes frequently daily, so um, you can always reach out to me or to any member of our team through their website. And as always, everything we've ever print- printed is available for free digital download off our website as well. I would like to take a moment to thank our High Canada Magazine reps across the country. Uh, we have Mellow Moments in Kingston, Tammy905 in Hamilton, Miss Lynette in Montreal, uh, Colin Bambury, Bruce Ryan, Phil Wong, Michaela Friedman, uh, Evangelina Kaye, Rainbow Smith, Jeannie Mora, who uh, every month takes care of all of our corrections and changes and she keeps us on track and makes sure our language is on point mary jane baker thanks to everybody on our team
1: hope you like the show stay tuned for the next one looking forward